Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Season 5, Episode 35 of They Walk Among Us, a podcast dedicated to UK true crime. This episode contains distressing themes and descriptions of sexual violence. This podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener caution is advised. Days turn to weeks, weeks to months, months to years, years to decades. Roy's murderer was free to travel around the countryside and towns across the United Kingdom undetected. Almost 33 years later, the law would catch up with him, but perhaps some of his crimes were left behind. Fourteen-year-old Roy Lindsay Tutil left his idyllic home, Wheelwright Cottage, in a charming village on Wheeler's Lane between Brockham and Betchworth in Surrey. His weekdays were spent at Kingston Grammar School in London. As part of his routine, Roy would usually take the bus to school, but to save money for a new bicycle, 
he would hitchhike part of the journey home, 19 miles from Leatherhead Road in Chessington, back to Wheelwright Cottage. On April 23, 1968, he had left school as usual at 3.30pm and caught the number 65 bus. Shortly after getting off at his stop, a second bus driver recalled seeing the teenager wearing his grey and pinkish-red vertical-striped blazer, carrying his brown school satchel holding his thumb out to get a lift on Leatherhead Road. However, Roy did not make it back for dinner. His absence was met with some concern, and by 9pm his parents, Hilary and Dennis, were panicked enough to call the police. Discovered three days later, just over five miles from where he was last seen, Roy was found on the Kirkley Court estate near Leatherhead. At 1pm near a private road at Mickleham, which led to the A24, foresters saw Roy's bright school blazer with a uniformed pattern, in stark contrast to the woods around him. The teenager was lying on the ground, a short distance from the entrance. His jacket covered part of his body. Roy Tutil was dead. He had been raped and strangled. Five hours earlier, just after 8am, the foresters that had found Roy's body had travelled the exact same route through the estate when going about their morning's work. They were positive that the boy, and most certainly his bright blazer, were not there before. Other witnesses who later came forward had also walked through the estate that morning and corroborated the account given by the foresters that the body of Roy Tutel had not been there earlier. A few days later, on Monday, April 29th, just as quickly as the police had rushed to the scene where Roy Tutel's body was discovered, the constabulary had to rush to another. A 13-year-old boy had been missing for approximately 30 hours. Adrian Stevens had received a new bicycle and seeking any excuse to take a ride outside. He left his home after dinner travelling several miles to his aunt's house to give her a hand with some gardening. He never arrived. Something stopped him along the way. He was one mile from his route to Stroud Green. He was also just one mile away from his home. His shiny red bike was perched near a tree. The couple came across the tragic sight as they were out walking. Adrian's body was found hanging from a length of rope. 
The area was heavily wooded in a beauty spot near a pond called Four Winds. It was dark when Adrian's body was discovered, so a search by floodlight was undertaken. A pathologist performed an on-the-spot examination. The scene was monitored by a police guard until break of day when the investigation could continue in the one-square-mile radius that was cordoned off. Chief Constable Peter Matthews of Surrey Police acknowledged it was suspicious and admitted the next logical step was to link the finding to the murder of Roy Tuttle, but the officer was keeping an open mind. Adrian Stevens' home was in Chartsdown, North Holmwood, a few miles away from where Roy Tuttle lived on Wheeler's Lane. The boys were both similar in appearance, Dark hair and dark eyes, pale skin, and both were found dead in questionable circumstances. Chief Constable Matthews said, We are treating it as being very suspicious. It would be wrong to make any connection at the moment. It was reported Adrian's weekend clothes of blue jeans and a red sweater were found at the scene with his body but it was not revealed in police statements whether the youth was dressed in them. It was not a question a spokesperson involved in the case was willing to answer either. The next day, police said the boys' deaths were not linked, and they had concluded Adrian Stevens probably died through misadventure. The cause was supposedly an adolescent experiment. The investigation into Roy Tuttle's murder was a huge undertaking. The murder squad from Scotland Yard was called in to help with the case. There had been tyre marks just five yards away from where the boy's body was found. During the initial investigation, detectives unearthed some interesting clues. There was a cafe and pub a few hundred yards from where the body was found. Officers interrupted people's lunches to ask patrons questions. Had they or the owners seen anyone or anything suspicious? Names and addresses were taken. As inquiries continued, an appeal to the public was made. On April 27th, a member of Scotland Yard's murder squad who was working on the case, a detective inspector, Percy Brown, made a plea to local parents. He said, If any children have been assaulted and told their parents and the parents have not told police, we would like to know about it. 28 people who had walked the path near where the body of Roy Tuttle was found came forward. They all bolstered the four foresters' claims that the body was certainly not there when they passed by that morning. As a bus driver made his rounds, frustratingly one of the stops was occupied by an Austin Westminster car. 
The driver was trying to pull up near the Bridge Road roundabout at Tolworth. The bus driver saw Roy Tuttle in his distinctive blazer talking to someone in the Austin. It was a popular make of car at the time, and in the days before records were digitised, officers had to thumb through 18,000 documents finding the owners of all the Austin Westminster cars in the country. Police shared the news that they were trying to locate a man of stocky build with silver-grey hair who owned or had access to a silver Austin Westminster. The woman who lived near where Roy Tootle was last seen came forward. Dorothy Mitchell believed she had spoken to Roy the evening he vanished. She told the reporter for The People that she briefly spoke with the 14-year-old at about 4.30pm. She said, As I walked up to the slope near my house, I saw a boy in a bright red blazer standing at a roundabout trying to thumb a lift. I've seen him before doing the same thing at that spot. Dorothy Mitchell, a grandmother, had a pang of worry for the boy. She had called to him, There are a lot of buses that run by here. Roy Tuttle politely smiled in response, and Dorothy walked through her front door. Fifteen minutes later, she came outside again to pop to the shops. Passing the roundabout, she noted the teenager had now gone. Detective Chief Inspector Philip Doyle appealed for more witnesses. He could not be absolutely certain Roy had hitched a ride from the roundabout. The inquiry team were eager to talk to anyone who had given Roy a lift in the past. DCI Doyle said, We don't know whether he got a lift or not, but we would be interested in seeing any lad who had been given a lift or accosted near Mickleham. The detective also added a distinctive feature about Roy. As well as his bright school blazer, the officer said the boy walked with, quote, pigeon toes. This expression describes someone who walks with their feet pointing inward. During rush hour, posters were put up on the roadside near where Roy would have tried to hitch a lift. Drivers were stopped to see if they'd seen the teenager the week before on their commute to and from work. An appeal poster in large, bold print read, Murder. If you saw a boy wearing a red blazer hitchhiking on Tuesday the 23rd of April, contact police. By October, investigators had worked tirelessly to find Roy Tuttle's killer. There were many avenues of inquiry, but not one had led to a suspect. The Austin Westminster owners had been processed, 
and over 10,000 interviews had been conducted. Roy Tuttle's inquest was held on October 14th in Epsom, almost six months since he was murdered. Police revealed that they had a witness, a woman whose identity was not revealed for her own safety. Scotland Yard Detective Superintendent Chris Brown told the inquest what the witness had seen. The woman saw a dark green car on the through road near where the body was later found. She saw at least four people in the car. One, she said, was a white-faced youth. The woman later heard a car drive up behind her. She realised it was the same car and became frightened and started to run. The car followed her slowly for a short time, then took off at speed. The coroner asked the officer whether their witness would be able to identify the driver and perhaps the other occupants of the car if needed. D.S. Brown said, If inquiries took a certain course, this would be a very important witness. The coroner returned their verdict and ruled that Roy Tutil had been murdered by a person or people unknown. After the inquest, a stark warning came from Detective Chief Inspector Philip Doyle about the dangers of children hitchhiking. He told parents that if they were not preventing their children from doing so, the children might not live long enough to learn their ABCs. By the start of 2001, Roy Tutul's brother had left England to live in America. His sister had also emigrated. Sadly, his parents had since passed away. It had been 33 years since Roy's murder. Detective Superintendent David Cook was in charge of a cold case review. Looking to raise awareness, he spoke with a reporter for Surrey Live. He said, We owe it to the family and friends of Roy Tutel that we should never close this case until we are certain that we could never find the offender or we could bring that person to justice. I am pleased with the progress we have made, but there is still a great deal of work before this case can be closed. In 1984, near Coventry, another family experienced the loss of their teenage son in unusual circumstances. Saturday, September 1st, Mark Billington, a 15-year-old, went out on his blue racing bike, but did not come home. He had gone out to Gilbertstone Park near where he lived to fly his kite. While he was out during the late morning, Mark was standing outside of a building society in Birmingham. 
a group of teenagers saw him. One of them called out. Like Adrian Stevens, the teenager's body was found in woodland, this time off the A45 around eight miles from his home on Summers Road, Meriden, near Birmingham International Airport. It had been nine long weeks since Mark Billington had disappeared. His body was discovered on November 11th with his bike nearby. At first, the official line from the police suggested Mark had taken his own life. But his father Roy and mother Winifred Billington wildly refuted this claim. There was no proof that the 15-year-old was struggling with his mental health or was having a rough time at school. An inquest ruled an open verdict. Mark's case had troubled a member of the 1984 inquest jury who spoke with a correspondent for the BBC. He said, At the back of my mind it was always pointing to murder, but we just couldn't prove it. For him to travel so far down with his bike, I think he used to go towards the airport plane spotting, but it is some distance to travel on a push bike when you are that age. Boxing Day, December 26, 1996. Patrick Warren, known as Paddy, aged 11 and his friend 13-year-old David Spencer vanished into thin air. That morning, Patrick went to David's house on Circus Avenue in Shelmsley Wood, Solihull. He brought with him a red bicycle he got for Christmas. Patrick was really excited, and likewise David had a gift he was enthusiastic about, a pool table. The best friends went out to play on the bike, only returning to refuel on the leftover food from Christmas Day. They popped in not long before midnight to let David's mother know they wanted to stay at Patrick's brother's house for the night. She agreed. The property was just a short walk away. When the boys left, they must have been distracted because after midnight the youngsters were seen outside the shell garage in Chelmsley Wood, not far from their homes. Patrick had his prized red bike in his possession, and David walked beside him. The shop assistant gave the boys some biscuits, and later said the pair then walked off towards Chelmsley Wood shopping centre. The bicycle and Apollo laser was the last tangible thing that showed the boys were there. It was left abandoned at the side of the garage. Though the bicycle was found, police did not link it to the disappearance until weeks later. Concern was steadily growing that the boy's disappearance was not treated as seriously 
were acted upon as quickly as if they were from a middle-class family. David and Patrick, who often played out late, were both from working-class households. They knew a lot of people in the sprawling estate and had family members dotted around nearby. When police learned more about their home life, it was theorised they might very well have run away from home. This assumption slowed down the urgency of the investigation. Police treated the situation as a missing person inquiry. Officers went door to door and areas nearby were searched. At first, the news of the disappearances did not catch the attention of the national press. It was solely local newspapers who printed appeals for David and Patrick to come home. There was not a sense of urgency to track down the 11 and 13-year-old, who had no money and by late January had not been seen or heard from for an entire month. It was stressed by officers the boys were streetwise, a way of thinking that would likely be different today. Maybe Patrick and David would be seen as vulnerable young boys. Finally, their mothers were able to make a televised appeal for their son's safe return. David, Paddy, if you're out there, please come home. We're all missing you. I'm really worried about the son. The West Midlands Constabulary offered a £500 reward for information about anyone who was shielding them. Though it was a missing person inquiry for two minors, updates and reports were still being worded as if they had run away. The boys' families were desperate to get them home safely. Their mothers knew their boys could be a handful, but due to their ages, how could they be away so long without anyone seeing them and there being no contact? Plus, Patrick's bike, a gift he loved, had been disregarded. David Spencer's mother was honest about her son. He could sometimes really misbehave, both at home and at school. He had been expelled for his behaviour. A teacher from David's old school was flummoxed by the 13-year-old's disappearance. He told the BBC that his former pupil was troubled. They stated, It was his unpredictability. You couldn't tell with him when something was going to go wrong. When he wasn't found, we were surprised. That was one of the things that always puzzled us. He was one of the most street-wise pupils we had at the time. There was another side to David Spencer. He enjoyed pool and boxing. His mother Christine thought her son could be adorable, with his deep red hair and freckles across his nose. She was certain he would not run away. Patrick Warren was from a large family, one of seven. His parents were originally from Ireland. Not unusual for an 11-year-old, he could be cheeky to his mother, teasing her about her accent. In the years following his disappearance, Bridget Warren honestly said about her son Patrick, 
he was a bit on the wild side. There's no point in saying he was an angel, because he wasn't. Like many other children, he showed his naughtiest side to his teachers, but his friend's parents said that Patrick was a terrific little lad. The National Missing Persons Helpline featured the boys' photographs on milk cartons in April of the following year. But nothing. Three years would pass. Two letters were sent to police officers between December 1999 and January 2000 regarding David Spencer and Patrick Warren's whereabouts. The correspondence was traced back to Winston Green Jail, a Category B prison in Birmingham. The author claimed to know where the boys were. He said they had been, quote, disposed of at Woodgate Valley Country Park, about 12 miles as the crow flies from their homes in Chelmsley Wood. Yeri was searched when police first received the letters, and forensic archaeologists went back for a second time, but sadly nothing was found that proved that the boys were there, or there was any truth to the letters. A 37-year-old was found to have written the correspondence, but the man was released from police custody when there was no evidence what he was saying was true. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. When DNA techniques had advanced enough, test samples were taken from the clothing of Roy Tuttle, who had been murdered in 1968. Unfortunately, it was not possible to extract the same samples in the Adrian Stevens case. Over time, the evidence had been destroyed perhaps because it was ruled an accidental death and not a murder inquiry. Unfortunately, the same was true in the case of Mark Billington. The evidence was reviewed again in 2001 after important updates in the Tutel case, but vital exhibits had been thrown away, making further analysis impossible. The exhibits in the Roy Tutel case were different, and the approach taken by the inquiry team was far more organised. Detective Chief Inspector Philip Doyle was methodical, ensuring evidence had been preserved in cold storage all those decades ago. A DNA profile found on the clothing of Roy Tuttle was nothing more than a speck. It was cross-referenced against the UK's national DNA database, but the perpetrator did not have a recent criminal conviction, nor had they recently been arrested on suspicion of a crime. Records for the National DNA Database were only available from 1995 onward. It was not until February 2001, when a drunk driver was stopped near Birmingham, that swabs were taken. There was a match. It had been almost 33 years since Roy Tuttle had been murdered. In his mid-sixties, Brian Field was a labourer who travelled from farm to farm around the country to fix agricultural equipment. When taken into police custody in an initial interview, Field barely said a word, other than to say he had nothing to do with Roy Tuttle's murder. But after three days in custody and being forensically linked by a speck of DNA evidence, Field eventually admitted what the police strongly suspected. He had murdered Roy.
Brian Field was born Brian Lull. His upbringing in Lincolnshire was far from idyllic. He grew up in a children's home. In 1969, just one year after Roy Tootle's body was found, Field had a brush with the law. He was fined for gross indecency after handing obscene notes to an undercover police officer in a public toilet in Wales. Several years after Roy Tootle was murdered, Brian Lunfield was tracked down and interviewed. The police had begun to question known paedophiles in the area or any individuals that had indecency charges on their criminal record. Field categorically denied he murdered anyone. In the days before full DNA testing, a basic blood group was the only evidence police could go by. Field packed up his belongings and moved somewhere else, living off the grid. A 15-year-old had had a near brush with death at the hands of Brian Field. In November 1972, in his early 30s, Brian Lunfield had assaulted the teenager after he saw him walking alone on a country lane. Field drove the victim to the middle of nowhere and left the boy naked and traumatised in the woods. Unlike the crimes against Roy Tutel, Field was apprehended straight away for these offences. He was sent to prison following sentencing at Aberdeen Sheriff Court. After his release, Field was married for a second time. The union was not to last, and in 1981 the couple divorced. It is not known whether his wife was aware of Field's criminal history involving children. In 1982, he was fined for gross indecency. A year on, Brian Field started to groom a 15-year-old who was struggling at home. Now in his mid-40s, Field convinced the teenager that they were in a relationship. He coerced the 15-year-old called Nicky with presents and promises of holidays before sexually abusing him. A year later, when the teenager's mother found out about the existence of Brian Field and what he was doing to her son, she called the police. In a statement in his defence, Field claimed that he didn't realise the relationship was harmful to the boy who had since turned 16. He said, Nicky is a good boy, and I'm very sorry if my actions upset or hurt him. I did not mean any harm. At the time, unaware of what was happening, Nicky said, Brian takes me out everywhere. We go drinking together. I had planned to go on holiday with him. We are going to Barmouth at Easter. I love Brian and want to live with him. A judge, however, agreed that Brian Field's actions did have a substantial adverse effect on the teenager. The Shrewsbury Crown Court on September 23, 1983, 
Field was sentenced to four years in prison for pleading guilty to two counts of buggery. Field's time behind bars was later reduced to two years on appeal. He had not been out long when in 1986, two teenage boys aged 13 and 16 had a near miss with Brian Field. They had accepted a ride under the assumption that there were two of them. They should be okay. But Field threatened them with a wheel brace and told the boys to take off their clothing. The pair thankfully managed to escape when they both made the decision to jump from his moving car. In 1968, after Roy Tuttle had been murdered, Brian Field admitted he bundled the body of the child into the boot of his white mini. He drove home to the house he shared with his first wife and the baby she had given birth to just two weeks earlier. Roy's body was left in the car until it was dumped by Field where the foresters would find him later. Field had claimed that he transported Roy's body in a white mini. However, this is at odds with the unnamed female witness who had been walking the path where Roy Tuttle's body was found. She described a dark green car parked close to the scene. She said there were four people inside, and they acted suspiciously as she walked near. Either this sighting was purely coincidental, or it was possible Field had not committed the crime alone. After Brian Field was linked to Roy Tuttle's murder through DNA, concerns arose that he had killed and molested other children and teenagers. Police forces around the country examined dozens of cases of missing youngsters and hundreds of random sexual attacks. Even though the police were lacking vital evidence from the death of Mark Billington 17 years before, in February 2002, it was announced his case had officially moved to a murder inquiry. At the time of Mark Billington's disappearance, Brian Field lived a few miles away from Mark's family home on Rowwood Drive in Sullyha. Perhaps more than a coincidence, Brian Field also lived and worked near the homes of David Spencer and Patrick Warren. Field is just one of many possible suspects. He was not the only violent paedophile active when the boys disappeared. At the Old Bailey, Brian Field pleaded guilty to Roy Tuttle's murder. In court, he refused to admit guilt to the teenager's rape. He knew after serving time behind bars, albeit for a short period, he was fully aware paedophiles were not treated kindly in prison. Wendy Joseph QC explained to the court what Field said of Roy Tuttle's death. Quote, He described the boy convulsing, 
gasping for air and said he carried on until Roy suddenly went lifeless. Evidence showed that the teenager had been strangled from behind with a rope and was raped. Brian Field had been familiar with the area where Roy's body was dumped. He worked nearby at the time as a farming engineer for the Milk Marketing Board in Surrey. After moving to Wales, it was less than a year before he was fined for public indecency in a public toilet. Then over the years, he committed more crimes against boys. Addressing the overwhelming evidence against the defendant, Judge Gerald Gordon described how Field ended the life of a normal, happy, healthy boy simply to satisfy his desires. The judge said, These acts and their consequences must have haunted his parents for the rest of their lives, and the rest of the family must still suffer from what you did. When you strangled him, I have no doubt you sought to destroy the sole source of evidence against you. Thirty-three years later, you have been proved wrong. Following the leaps and bounds in forensic analysis, Judge Gerald Gordon said this should come as a warning that there is, quote, no hiding place for sexual and violent criminals. Field's expression did not change when the judge sentenced him to life in prison. It took 33 years, but 65-year-old Brian Field was finally arrested for murdering a schoolboy, and tonight begins a life sentence. Roy's aunt says the family is relieved his killer's been found. Life sentence, put him in, in jail, and throw away the key so that he can't harm anybody else anymore. His convictions thought to be the longest period between committing a crime and solving it. Outside the Old Bailey, Detective Chief Superintendent David Cook, who worked the cold case inquiry, said of the man who had just been sentenced to life in prison, By his plea of guilty, Brian Field has publicly admitted that he is a very dangerous person. When you take into account his previous criminal history, it leaves you in no doubt what a danger he poses to society, and in particular, to young boys. A spokesperson for the West Midlands Police confirmed that the constabulary would be working with Surrey Police to investigate if Brian Field was connected to what was labelled uncleared matters. Quite, one such matter is the death of Mark Billington, which is now being reinvestigated. We are open-minded about the disappearance of Patrick Warren and David Spencer, but this remains a missing person inquiry. Leading the new inquiry into the death of Mark Billington, 
Detective Chief Inspector Robin Hancocks wanted to ensure the investigation was not centred on a single suspect. In an interview published in the Coventry Telegraph discussing Brian Field's involvement, DCI Hancock said, While there has been much speculation that this death was perhaps connected to paedophile activity, I would like to refocus the public away from that. While I cannot dismiss Field's involvement as a possibility, I would like to refocus them to what was happening in that area at the time. The detective made an appeal to the group of teenagers that had seen Mark Billington before his body was found. DCI Hancocks believed they could have vital information and wanted them to come forward. He stated, It is 18 years almost since Mark disappeared, so people's memories will have diminished with time. But we have never traced the youths either in the park while he was flying his kite or outside the building society. Mark Billington's parents were also behind the renewed appeal for information. They were interviewed by a correspondent for the BBC soon after Brian Field was sentenced. Mark's mother, Winifred, remarked, I just wish and hope and pray that whoever knows anything, however small, perhaps they don't realise it could mean something relevant. I just hope and pray they come forward. Mark's father, Roy, said, It is great just to know that it is formally identified that Mark didn't commit suicide and they are fully investigating the reasons for his murder. As a search for answers continued, David Spencer's mother, Christine O'Toole, made an appeal on the BBC News in 2006. It was reaching ten years since her son and his friend Patrick Warren had vanished on Boxing Day. David Spencer's mother described how she needed to put her boy to rest. Then I can grieve, she said. It's not knowing that's the worst part. I've had several breakdowns over the last ten years. Christine O'Toole was desperate for peace of mind. She just wanted to bring David home. So where are we now? In early November 2020... Human remains were unearthed when workmen were digging on a construction site in an area set to be a Jaguar Land Rover manufacturing plant. The location was only a few miles away from where Patrick Warren and David Spencer had lived. The bones were examined by forensic and archaeological experts. The conclusion came quickly. Although to the families and officers that worked on the case, it must have felt like an eternity. The bones were not the remains of either Patrick Warren or David Spencer. 
testing showed they were buried long before 1996, when Patrick and David went missing. A spokesperson for West Midlands Police confirmed that the remains did not correspond to an individual the same age as the boys. The constabulary were not linking the discovery to any other criminal investigation. An unidentified former police officer who worked on the force during the time Patrick Warren and David Spencer went missing spoke to the Sunday Mercury in 2020. He thought the destruction of DNA evidence ruined the chance of many cold cases being solved. However, he believed there to be a link to the case of Mark Billington. He suspected, along with his former colleagues, that the teenager did not take his own life. The ex-officer also thought that Brian Field was the man responsible. He had been living in a caravan in the garden of his employer for some time. His boss was also a convicted paedophile. The mystery officer said, I believe Field murdered Mark Billington because of the similarities in the Roy Tuttle case. There are striking similarities in the modus operandi. In spite of these claims... West Midlands police did not believe the death of Mark Billington was, quote, the result of paedophile activity. Brian Field was interviewed under caution over three days about Patrick Warren and David Spencer, but throughout he denied any knowledge of their disappearance. In 2006, the Warren and Spencer missing person case had been changed to a no-body murder. However, in spite of the inquiry being reframed and the West Midlands Constabulary acknowledging that someone had purposefully ended their lives, a decade would pass until another appeal was made. Detective Chief Inspector Caroline Marsh from the Homicide Team said, I do believe the boys are deceased, and something very serious must have happened to them. If the boys were murdered, someone knows who is responsible for that, and I appeal to anyone with information to come forward. David Spencer's brother, Lee O'Toole, spoke at a press conference, marking the 20th anniversary of the boys' disappearance. He was like my backbone. If I ever needed anything, I'd go to him. He'd help me out, like. I always think of him constantly, every day. There's not a day that goes by that I haven't thought of him. I have nightmares, lack of sleep. It wears me down, wears me feeling. I've had ups and downs over the years. It's tough. It's a very tough thing to live with. Brian Field was again questioned from prison. He was working as a gardener at the time Patrick Warren and David Spencer disappeared. The site he would use to dispose of green waste was located on Old Damson Lane in Solihull near Birmingham International Airport, around three miles from where the two boys were last seen and eight miles from the spot where the body of Mark Billington was found. The site was searched. 
Detective Chief Superintendent Gordon Fraser, who was leading the excavation, told the press, We are removing that rubble now and returning the land to the level it was ten years ago. And then we'll use highly trained officers to sift through the earth to try and establish whether there's any evidence at all that connects us to David or Patrick. On a deserted patch of wasteland on the outskirts of Solihull, the search is underway for the bodies of two boys, missing for a decade, lost without trace. Frustratingly, no evidence was found. Although only convicted of the murder of Roy Tutel, Brian Field is suspected of committing other rapes and murders of teenage boys, from the Midlands to as far afield as Aberdeen. It has also been speculated that he did not commit the crimes alone, but as part of a ring. That said, while there are many theories, none have been proven. Christine O'Toole, David Spencer's mother, told the Mail Online in 2020 the police had gone to talk to Field again around the time the bones were discovered in Solihull. She remarked, He said that this time he told them, When you find something, come talk to me again. Whether he is now going to admit it, I don't know. you or anyone you know has information about the murder of Mark Billington or whereabouts of Patrick Warren and David Spencer as mentioned on this podcast, you can contact Crime Stoppers in the UK on 0800 555 or visit their website crimestoppers-uk.org. Thank you for listening. A special thanks to our new Patreon producer, Benjamin Sutton, and everyone who supports us on Patreon. For more information on this episode, please see the show notes or visit our website, theywalkamonguspodcast.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bolandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.